great singing that hymn written by Martin Luther based on Psalm 130. If you would, please open your Bibles and turn with me to Paul's letter to Titus, one of his pastoral letters, not written uh, to a um, church, but in this case, a particular person uh, who he was instructing and encouraging in pastoral ministry. Um, If you would also now join me as we turn to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, may this book that is before us now not be something that looks good on our coffee table, uh, sits prominently on our bookshelf, but Father, may we, uh, as the psalmist declares over and over again, Father, that your word is life. Father, may we indeed find life in your word as it points us to the living word, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, be pleased now to illuminate your word, give us understanding and give us a growing desire to know your word and to put it into practice, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today is the beginning of a brief mini-series, a two-week series entitled The Banners of Truth. As I mentioned earlier, um, we've done this before. It's good to revisit it. Um, I can never, uh, uh, I need to hear it over and over again. Um, The idea for this title of this series, The Banners of Truth, um, are the banners right up here uh, to my right and left um, up here. Uh, And what are these banners presenting? Well, Biblical truth. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with uh, an organization out of uh, uh, the United Kingdom entitled the Banner of Truth Trust. The Banner of Truth Trust. Um, And what it is, it's an organization that was established in the 1950s for, quote, the advancement and dissemination of the knowledge and understanding of the Christian faith. And that's what we're going to be doing by God's Kindness is uh, our knowledge and understanding will grow uh, today and next week. This week, grace has appeared and next week, peace has arrived. Um, Paul starts and finishes his letters, all of his letters, with grace and peace. In fact, it's the bookends of, of Ephesians. He starts off with grace and peace and then ends with peace and grace. And what's interesting is just to think with me for a moment about this relationship of grace and peace. Uh, Grace being really a Greek term and and, and peace being a a Hebrew term. Uh, Here you have, interestingly, with Paul using grace and peace, he's bringing together, as it were, old and new covenants. He's bringing together the Old Testament and the New Testament. uh, Helping us even remember uh, with this clue that it's one message. Uh, It's one God with one message for one people from beginning to end. And as I like to remind myself and others, uh, when you hear grace and peace, it's almost like hearing what's the cause and effect of the gospel. In other words, because grace has appeared, peace has arrived. Now, as I've mentioned, I think in the email uh, getting ready for uh, today, that, that the name of the church, Grace and Peace, it serves as both an anchor holding us to the historic Christian faith, but it also serves as an engine driving us forward in ministry. It's the grace and peace 
of the gospel. Now, remember, uh, the gospel is news. It is good news. It is not advice. Every other religion known to man, constructed by man, is based on advice. What you need to do. Here's how you need to live. Christianity and Christianity alone has as its basis news. It's good news. Um, a year or two ago, I was stopped at that light on turfway that lasts forever, for those of you eager to get over here, like I am. And, and there was an ad for a psychic, and it said, advice on all matters. Interestingly, that's how a number of churches see ministry, uh, advice on any number of matters. But at the heart of the gospel, there is good news and at the heart of the good news is grace. And so having a knowledge and a right understanding of grace is absolutely essential to being able to respond well to the news. Now, why does grace matter? Why does grace matter? Uh, there is a common view of grace that is very wrong. And that is this. Grace fills in the gap between what you can do and what you can't do. It makes up for what we lack. It's a common view of grace. It's just the gap filler. And there's another common but wrong view of grace as well. And that is the idea that grace just gives you a second chance. And we've all heard that, right? God's grace gives us a second chance. But if you think about that for a moment, well, what does that mean? A second chance to save yourself by your works? I mean, yeah, I, I blew it the first time, so now I'm going to get a second time to try to save myself through what I, I do. Well, in view of these wrong views, um, the Bono, the front man, uh, the, uh, the most well-known um, member of the supergroup U2, says this about grace. It's a powerful idea, grace. It really is. We hear so much about karma and what you, sh and what you put out you will receive and even Christianity which is supposed to be about grace has turned redemption into good manners or the right accent or good works or whatever I just can't get over grace he says and if you get grace wrong you get the gospel wrong for grace is at the heart of the gospel and if you get the gospel the central message of Christianity wrong you get Christianity wrong. And if you get Christianity wrong, then I think it's fair to say that you may still be on the outside. You may not have come in. You, you would be lost and, and dead. Well, today we're going to take a look at a passage from one of Paul's pastoral letters. Titus 2 verses 11 through 14 provides a right view of grace. In fact, I believe it's one of the most comprehensive descriptions of grace in all of Scripture. Join with me now as I read Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us 
to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Well, so far, we've briefly acknowledged why grace matters. Our text will help us understand a few more things about grace. Uh, Let's start with this, uh, what grace does. We see in verse 11, grace saves. Four, it's because in verses 1 through 10, he's presented some teaching on how to live the Christian life. Now, here's the why, the scriptural doctrine for the ethical demands he has just presented. Notice it's past action. For the grace of God has appeared. God has intervened in history, the incarnation. It's not too long ago that we were in Galatians. And in Galatians chapter 4, we read this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. For the grace of God has appeared. It's past. It has happened. Now, what is meant by this expression, the grace of God? Well, it's a concise statement to to summarize all of God's actions on behalf of his people, those who he would redeem. Now, what do we mean by grace? Well, several senses in scripture, but here, I believe a, a good way to see it is it's God's unmerited favor to those who deserve his wrath. It's, it's mercy. It's not getting what we deserve. It's grace. It's getting what we do not deserve. And this grace, as we sang at the beginning of our worship service, is, when you stop and think about it, it is truly amazing. In his preface to the book, By Grace Alone, How the Grace of God Amazes Me, Sinclair Ferguson says this, quote, Being amazed by God's grace is a sign of spiritual vitality. It is a litmus test of how firm and real is our grasp of the Christian gospel and how close is our walk with Jesus Christ. The growing Christian finds that the grace of God astonishes and amazes. Yet we frequently take the grace of God for granted. We think, of course God is gracious, or of course we deserve his grace. After all, are we not his people? We may never say these things, but when we think like this, the grace of God ceases to be amazing. Sadly, it also ceases to be grace. The word grace, it rolls off of our lips, doesn't it? The reality of grace should actually stop us in our tracks. He goes on to say that bringing salvation for all people. Now, this is not a proof text for universal salvation. Uh, Rather, the meaning is this. It's for all kinds of people, old, young, men, women, Jew, Gentile. It's the context of Titus itself, as you can read in Titus previous to that. So what effect did the appearance of grace have? Well, we see, of course, that grace saves. It brought salvation. Anything else? Well, in verse 12, we see that the grace that saves also trains. Here, saving grace becomes training grace. Look with me in verse 12. Training us. Training us. It's present action. 
Uh, some translations, it's teaching. And yet it's more than just instruction. It is instruction, encouragement, correction, and discipline. It's both education and training. And, and this training goes in two directions. Um, it's, there's a negative and there's a positive. There's something to say no to and it's something to say yes to. And it's a no to ungodliness, a no to impiety. It's a, it's a no to disregarding, ignoring God. It is saying, don't not take God seriously. A no to ungodliness, but also a no to worldly passions, to living according to the world's standards for significance. And what are the world's standards? Turn on the radio, turn on the TV, read the newspaper, read the magazine, listen to your friends. It's, it's the talk at the water cooler. It's the talk at the ball game. What is the world consumed with? Pleasure, possessions, and prominence. And yet Paul is saying that this grace trains you, trains me to make a decisive break with ungodliness and worldly passions. But he doesn't just say no, that grace also says something positive, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. To say yes to a life with God at the center, to, to, to put uh, aside the world's voice, and to hear God's voice, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly, that God is at the center. And these three words really can be seen in the three relationships we have. Self-controlled in relationship to ourself, upright um, before um, others, before God, and, and godly uh, before others. And he ends that by saying, in the present age. It's again, it's a reinforcement. It's present action. It's ongoing. Grace saves. The emphasis is on the past. But grace trains in the here and now. So we see just right off the bat that grace saves. Grace trains. And here at the beginning of verse 13, we see grace orients. It's a present action waiting focused on a future event. Listen to verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a movement from the appearing of grace to the appearing of glory. Have any of you all used a compass? Kids, have you gone out in the woods? and used a compass, used a map, used a compass to try to find out where to go. Well, do you know what that uh, activity is called? You may not have known this, but it's called orienteering. It's using a, 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 a compass to navigate. And so grace is orienting, it's navigating, helping us navigate to that future appearing of Jesus in glory. Because you see, Jesus appeared first in humility. Scripture is clear. Scripture is also clear that he will reappear in glory. Because Christ is the supreme object of the Christian hope. Our hope as believers is not one day that we will somehow get it all together. But rather that our hope is that Jesus 
will come. Jesus will return. Jesus will make all things new. I can't tell you how often I and others that I know are working hard to get it all together. It is important to work hard. It is important to to put off the old and to put on the new. But in this life, in this flesh, we are going to make progress. We're going to be more sensitive to sin. We're going to pursue holiness and righteousness and put sin to death. But we're not going to get it all together. And if our hope is that we will get it all together, we can't be at rest. We can't be at peace. Our hope is that Jesus will come again, that he will return, that all things will be made new. So we've seen in terms of grace works that grace saves, grace trains, and grace orients us. Not to a program, but to a person. And so our next we need to next consider who grace is. And we see it at the end of verse 13 into 14. Uh, a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is not some abstract theory. Grace is not a concept. Grace is not an intellectual, theological construction. It's not a copyrighted or trademarked of Reformed theology. But rather, grace is a person. Earlier, I read the opening comments by Sinclair Ferguson to his book, By Grace Alone, How the Grace of God Amazes Me. Here's how he concludes that introduction, that preface. Grace is not a thing. It is not a substance that can be measured or a commodity to be distributed. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In essence, it is Jesus himself. And our something to think about quote uh, is saying something along those lines from an interview that he did a few years ago. God's grace appeared in the Old Testament. From our Old Testament reading, we heard about a great light that had shined, a child that was born, a son that was given. Grace had appeared Grace appears visibly in Jesus, his miraculous birth, his perfect life, his sin-atoning death, his victorious resurrection. And listen to these words again if you didn't hear it. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There it is, our great God and Savior. The Bible declares that Jesus of Nazareth is God, and we see that in this clear affirmation of his divinity. Now, who is this great God and Savior? Let's move on to verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He gave himself. In our study of Mark a couple of years ago, we heard... In Mark 10 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why did Christ give himself? Two reasons. You see it here. First, to redeem us. And the focus here is on the individual, not to not just to forgive us, although that's true, but to redeem us. Because in the fullness of time, God sent Jesus to redeem those, as we saw 
in Galatians 4. There's an echo here of the Old Testament exodus. To redeem us from what? From all lawlessness. Not just the FBI's 10 most wanted list. That kind of lawlessness that you might see posted up in the post office. But rather lawlessness being this. Grumbling. Gossip. Adultery. One of the Ten Commandments. Well, how about just looking at people as objects to satisfy your lust? How about not maybe going into a store and stealing something that you haven't paid for, but how about living life as if the financial bottom line is controlling everything? That's the kind of lawlessness that he's redeeming us from. But second, not only to redeem to buy back, to rescue, but to purify for himself a people. Whereas the redemption is kind of a focus on the individual, here is the focus on the church. For himself, a people for his own possession, his own, a people who belong to him. Um, The translation from the Greek to the English can't quite capture it. And of course, all of the Hebrew that preceded that, it's how do you capture this A people for himself. I will be your God and you will be my people. And these people are zealous for good works. It's the motivation of the grace of God and salvation. We belong to Jesus to be be zealous for good works. Titus is all about God's grace and the good works that flow from a life that is being transformed. By the amazing grace of God. So again, look how this ends. A people who are zealous for good works. Who are eager. What what are you eager to do? Have you ever asked yourself, if I don't have to think about anything, what do I think about? If I don't have to do anything, what do I end up doing? Here we we see that grace is training us to be enthusiasts, to be zealous for good works. Now, the the word zealous has a a connotation as bad, right? But here, zealous for good works. We all love Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 about being saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no one can boast. But don't forget about 10 For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What God has joined together, in other words, should not be separated. Now in looking ahead to the future, Paul looks back to the historic act of redemption. Christ's life and death for us, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Did you notice that in this short passage before us, it's bracketed by two advents, the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ. He has appeared and the coming appearing. Here in four short verses are the two endpoints of the Christian era. Um, The late British theologian John Stott observed this. The best way to live now in this present age is to learn to do spiritually what is impossible physically, namely to look in opposite directions 
at the same time. In other words, in order to live the Christian life now in the present, we must simultaneously look back on the incarnation of Jesus Christ and look forward to His return. We live today, in other words, in the light of yesterday and the light of tomorrow. We are living between two worlds. That's the theme of Table Talk this month. Between two worlds, the already and the not yet. The already of His first coming and the not yet of His second coming. This is where we live. So we've seen that grace saves from death to life and grace trains from life to more life and grace orients us from the present life here on earth to a future life in heaven. It orients us from suffering now to glory later. And grace orients us to a person. A person who showed up, a person who arrived And as soon as he arrived on the scene, he got to work. And so let's look at how grace works. Well, what did Jesus come to do? In Paul's letter to the Galatians that we finished up um, this spring, we saw in the third verse that Paul says that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. He came to deliver us, to rescue us. Jesus himself, we read in Luke 4, said, I have been sent to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus also said that he came to seek and save the lost. We heard earlier in our assurance of pardon, we're Paul writes Timothy and he said that Jesus came to save sinners. And when Jesus came, he got to work. And we see in the Gospels the work of Jesus going on and the change going on around Jesus. The dead are coming to life. The crippled are are walking. People's lives are being changed. We saw that in our study of Mark's gospel. Change. So simple, so obvious, yet in the Christian culture, many of us are often tempted to to seek the one and done, the quick fix, the pat answer. Haven't you said to someone and haven't you heard said to you, just do this, just do that? Pray more. Just read the Bible more. Just. One of my professors, when he was speaking about this, said, Just, are you kidding me? Change is difficult. It's death. It's transformation. In the words of Winston Churchill, it's blood and sweat and tears. There is really one quick fix. Only one quick fix. It's the return of Jesus. Everything else is a long, slow process in the same direction, the direction facing Jesus. So this brings us to the question, how does grace change us? Exactly how does grace change us, train us? 
Now that's the focus, I think, of the passage. We know, or at least we should know, that grace saves us. But how can we also say with confidence that grace trains us? In other words, how does grace bring about the change? How is grace the fuel for change? So here's the question. How are you changed, or excuse me, how are you trained by grace? Have you ever asked that question? How am I trained by grace? Well, the answer is this. We are trained by continually going back to the gospel, the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ. One way to understand and appreciate the gospel is to realize, as you've heard said before, that Jesus did live the life that we should live, that perfect life of obedience. But he also died the death we deserve for the rebellious life that we do live. And he did this for us in our place Paul writes to the Corinthian church, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He says this in that same letter, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Because grace is at the heart of the gospel. And in the gospel, in the mirror of the gospel, we recognize that we are more flawed and sinful than we ever dared believe or like to admit. That's the mirror of the gospel. And yet, through the window of the gospel, we also recognize that we are more loved and accepted than we dared hope at the same time. I love the way Jack Miller put it, cheer up. You're a lot worse than you think you are. Cheer up. You're a lot more loved than you could ever imagine in Christ. So here in his letter to Titus, Paul is making the argument that we obey. We say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. We say yes to a upright, godly life. Not in order to be accepted, or saved by God, but rather we obey because we have been already accepted or saved by God. In other words, we obey out of gratitude. Do you remember last week? It was not just Heidelberg Catechism question number one. What is your only comfort in life? But it was also question two. How do we live and die in this comfort? By remembering three things. Our guilt... God's grace and the life of gratitude that we live in response. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. And the rest of the Heidelberg Catechism unfolds that life of gratitude which primarily consists of obeying the commands of God. Now this idea of grace motivating you is a radical idea. It's revolutionary. But it's the logic of the gospel itself because the fuel for change is the grace of the gospel itself. Because hear this, grace changes the got to. And it changes it to the want to. Because you see, grace doesn't change us at the... At outward behavior, grace changes us at the level of our inward desires. I love watching the Olympics, do you? I love watching the stories of the runner from Africa or the bobsledder from 
Norway and they talk about the training that they do. And as you hear these, these stories of training, you've you got to see that they've got an interesting motivation. It's not that they have to train, but they want to train. The want to of their training is bigger than the got to of their training. Because you see, grace changes us at the level of our desires. Outward conformity is so much easier than inward alignment to the gospel. I knew of a man who outwardly conformed to the gospel more than I think anyone. I, I didn't know him personally, but I knew of him and I read his books. And there was no more outward conformity. This man was a model of outward conformity. But when his sin was exposed, when he was, as it were, walking on the ridge and his silhouette was visible, when the Word of God exposed him, it exposed a life of hidden sin, and sadly, the man's only response was to take his own life. Outward conformity is much easier than inward alignment to the gospel because it goes to the level of our desires. And my friends, that's why legalism, salvation by works, is so attempting and so attractive. Do you know why? Legalism is easier. Outward conformity is easier than an inward realignment to the grace of the gospel found in Jesus. So what have we learned from this one long, complex sentence in the original language? First, grace appeared in Jesus Christ. Grace is personal. You've heard the expression, don't take it personally. Well, when it comes to grace, just as we saw with justification by faith in Galatians, you have to take it personally. Not only has grace arrived in the person and work of Jesus Christ, but also the grace continues to arrive through the means of grace, the word of God, the sacraments, prayer, the fellowship of God's people. And grace will arrive in glory when Christ returns. As we've seen, grace has past, present, and future dimensions. Therefore, you and I, need to say regularly with the church down through the ages this expression, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. So first, grace appeared in Jesus Christ. Grace is personal. Second, the grace that has appeared is a robust grace. It is not some kind of legalistic, condemning grace whipping us uh, into shape through some smiling version of Stoicism. Yet nonetheless, it is an intolerant grace because it's grace unto change. And so finally, we learn third, that grace appeared to change us. Grace did not appear in order to make already good lives just a little bit better. You've heard me say this before. It's the old commercial for BASF, a chemical company, we don't make a lot of the products you buy. We make a lot of the products you buy better. No, that's not grace. Because grace 
comes to make dead people alive. And nor did grace appear so that we could just turn inward and look to ourselves in order to somehow do it. Nike is on their 30th anniversary of the Just Do It campaign, and there's no bit of controversy. Well, there is a bit of controversy this past week. Just do it. It works for athletic gear, doesn't it? But it doesn't work in life because you cannot do it. But Jesus has done it for you. From beginning to end, salvation is of grace. Grace does not provide a second chance for you or me to get it right from now on. But grace provides you and me with a new status with God and a new desire and a new ability to no longer live for ourselves, but for Him. Because you see, at the core, at the heart, at the root, grace changes our got to to a want to. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. The grace of God made known in the gospel of Jesus Christ came to save us, to train us, and to orient us. God's grace, that is, Jesus Christ, comes to you. It comes to me where we are, but it doesn't leave us where we are. God's grace moves us. By the powerful working of His Holy Spirit, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. And the change that His grace brings displays not only the glory of God, but also the goodness to His people. As we are conformed more and more into the image of our Savior, and thus we are being fitted to be with Him and for his, with His people for all eternity. My friends, the Christian life here and now is all of grace. It's all of amazing grace. Grace in the words of a great hymn that we could sing, but we don't have time to sing. The hymn Grace Unmeasured says this. This grace paid for my sins and brought me to life. Grace that clothes me with power to do what is right. Grace that will lead me to heaven where we'll see his face and never cease to thank him for his grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Amazing grace, how life transforming the power. May we all know and understand the grace of God found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And may we experience his life transforming power the life-transforming power of Jesus himself and his love. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are indeed
a merciful and gracious God. We thank you that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. You treat us amazingly as your son deserved in his perfect life of obedience and love to you. Oh, Father, help us to not, to not think of grace so much as a theological truth, although it most certainly is. But help us to see grace in the face of Jesus, doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, standing in our place and on our behalf before Pilate and before his executioners. Father, may we never cease to be astonished and amazed by the grace that we find in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.